Hello, I'm Chris Moon, a fellow artist manager myself, and I will be your guide through Tough Love, Adventures in Artist Management. Today we speak with Ben Weber from Pressure Management. Ben manages one of my all-time favorite bands, Not A Surf, who recently put out yet another stellar album in their already impressive canon of work. While I've known Ben for over 20 years, and I consider him one of my closest manager confidants, I love that this conversation gave us the opportunity to dig into his history within the music industry and uncover what led him to become an artist manager. We also discussed the challenges of marketing consistently great artists in an era where attention spans are razor thin. Here's our chat, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. This is uh, Ben Weber. I am the owner and sole employee of uh, Pressure Management, um, based in Brooklyn, New York, and I currently work with Not A Surf and uh, Jesse Terry. Awesome. Well, man, so great to chat with you today, Ben. Uh, as Thanks, always, Chris. we're we're old friends, and uh, and you're actually a go-to uh, for me uh, when I need advice or perspective, uh, which I, you know, can't thank you enough for. Um, and uh, I think it's it's gosh, I mean, we're going on what twenty years knowing each other. I think maybe more. Oh now. yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to believe, but uh, here we are, still kicking it. Still doing say. it. Still doing it. Yep. One of the things I've been asking everybody uh, in this first season uh, of Tough Love is, you know, where your kind of origin story is, if you will, as an artist manager, um, and how you ended up into this, you know, kind of leaning into this crazy uh, gig uh, supporting artists. So do you mind taking us back to some of the begin- early parts of your career and where your entry point was into becoming a manager? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I, uh, I started thinking about a career in the music business when I was uh, in college um, at a small business school in Rhode Island um, that I'd gone to thinking I wanted to be an accountant. Um, and I quickly realized I did not want to be an accountant, and I had been spending most of my time uh, at the school at the college radio station, uh, DJing. I was music director uh, for a little bit and um, going to shows in, in, in Providence, and I'd always been a music fan. Um, and I started to think that once I realized I didn't want to be an accountant, that I would be better off... Um, doing something that I was excited and, and passionate about. And I started to think about, um, well, there, there must be a, 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 there is a music business, and I w- needed to go figure out what that business consisted of. Um, and so I transferred to NYU, um, where I was a uh, journalism and communications major, but I also started working for the uh, college programming um, office and booking concerts um, at, on the campus. Uh, and at the same time, um, interning for, uh, for an artist manager who I met soon after my arrival in New York. Um, and as I got ready to graduate school, even though I had been working for this artist manager, my goal at the time was to get a job at a record company. Um, and so this was like 90 or 
91. Um, and so a couple months after graduating, I got a gig um, at a company called Seed Records, which was uh, an Atlantic Re Records subsidiary, which was supposed to be their like alternative um, indie label. And it was me and like one or two other people. So um, I just ended up doing everything, whether it was radio promotion, retail promotion, tour marketing, um, and trying to, um, you know, learn as much about the different uh, aspects of a, of a record company as possible. And, you know, I was making no money, living with my grandma in, uh, in Queens. <laughs> um, but I was just so excited to be getting free CDs in the mail every day and free you know, tickets to concerts. So I didn't really care. And, and it was just, uh, it was a really exciting time. Uh, and I, I stayed there for a couple of years and then um, moved over to Electro Records, um, a, a, which was a, a label that I'd always wanted to work with, work at because um, a lot of my favorite bands uh, were, were, were signed to the, to the label. Um, and I stayed there again, like probably two years, but it was while I was there that I um, met the Not A Surf guys. Oh, okay. And actually um, was given their demo by a friend of mine I worked with named Bobby McCain, who had seen them at a, a small club the night before and really liked them and got a demo tape from them. And he, you know, said, you should really check this out. And for the next two or three days, I just listened to this demo cassette over and over um, and, and, and loved it. And then... I had become friendly with uh, an A&R person at the label, and I asked Bobby if he was okay with me playing it for him, um, which he, he was. And so I marched up to this guy's office, put the cassette in, and I think the second song or third song was popular, and the guy said, that song's a hit, let's sign this band, and kind of brought me along. Um, in, in, in meeting the Not A Surf guys, and that turned out to be very uh, fortuitous um, because six years later, I ended up uh, managing them, um, and they became like my first um, meaningful uh, management client. Um, but before then, I left Electro Records soon after the Not A Surf, first Not A Surf record came out because... I was always going to be an assistant there and probably was mm. never going to be promoted. And somehow I um, became the label manager for a UK-based label called Dedicated. Uh, and I went from being an, an assistant in the marketing department at Electra to helping run this, this small, uh, very cool label. Uh, they put out spiritualized records, the Cranes. Um, and Beth Orton. A, well, a, a year after we started the U.S. office, um, we got uh, the Beth Orton record, uh, Trailer Park, and that got a lot of attention and at the same time, I think, got me a lot of attention because Dedicated was a small U.S. office, and so we were out there really pushing this record, and I think that's when people started to kind of notice me. Um, but... Dedicated, which was owned by BMG, 
wasn't around much longer um, after we finished working that, that first record. And so um, it was pretty obvious that the U.S. office was going to be closed down and there was not a lot of work happening. And at the time, I'd started thinking about, um, about doing management. Um, because even though it was still not 100% clear to me what a manager did on a day-to-day basis, I kind of I recognized that that was the role where um, you, were, you were dealing uh, the closest with, with artists. And so I thought that would be um, uh, really interesting and exciting and, and, a, and a good experience. And our mutual friend, Jason Wilkins, um, turned me on to Nielsen Hubbard, um, who had recently put out a record on Adam Duritz's label and didn't have a ton of stuff going on, but I really loved the record, and um, I heard that he was looking for a manager, so I took the train down to Philadelphia one day and and met with Nielsen, and um, he became my first uh, management client. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. I, re- I remember those days. You you and I actually met through Jason when Jason's yeah. band was signed to Dedicated uh, and put out a single. I remember seeing you and Jake in that office in New York, probably during a mm-hmm. CMJ sometime around that time frame. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, the, the, the piece of this story that, it, that I didn't, I wasn't aware of was your time at Electra. I guess I knew about your time at, at dedicated, but I didn't know your, mm-hmm. you know, history prior to that. So I didn't realize that you guys had connected and you played a role actually, uh, very early in your career, uh, in getting them signed to oh, Electra. Yeah. Who was, who was the A&R guy there? If you don't mind me asking. Um, it was Josh Deutsch. That's what I figured. Yeah. Cause Josh was signing pretty much all the, the really good stuff coming out of Electra, super drag and yep, uh, stuff like that at the well. time. Yeah. Yeah. So I've known I've known the, the Not a Surf guys going on twenty five years. Wow. Um, but after after dedicated closed down, I um, I got like a consulting gig for a Capitol Records label called Odeon, and um, you know we put out again. It was supposed to be like Capitol Records independent label, and we were going to release records by artists that had been signed by Capital, but weren't exactly ready for, like, the big Capital machine. Um, but soon after I started working there, Capital started going through some major uh, executive changes. And uh, I, again, realized that um, the label wasn't going to be around much longer. Um, at that time, while I was doing that, um, I started to co-manage a band from Lawrence, Kansas, called The Ultimate Fake Book. Uh, with a buddy of mine who were signed to 550 Records, which was an Epic Records subsidiary. Um, so I was working with them. Um, and when the, uh, when the Capitol Records gig was about to end, I, um, I just started to get a feeling like I did not want to work for another record company. I thought that the labels were, they weren't as fun as uh, as they used to be when I started working in the music business, and it just seemed like they were going through some tough times. And this this is right around 2001, um, and uh, just as digital uh, 
distribution was uh, was starting to pick up. Um, and really, without giving it much thought, I, um, I decided to kind of hang out my, uh, my shingle as a, as a, as a manager. Um, and I had this band, Ultimate Fake Book. They had turned me on to a, a Kansas City band called uh, The People, who then became The Golden Republic. Um, and around that time, uh, Not A Surf were finishing up their album, Let Go. Um, and they had left their manager and were looking for someone um, to, 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 to work with and help them with this new album. And we'd, all, we'd, we'd remained very, very friendly since after I left Elektra and, and were in touch and they knew I was doing management full time and, and um, they asked me to, to start working with them. Um, which uh, the timing was just perfect because they had this great record which was going to relaunch their career and I was trying to relaunch my career as well and it just it's worked out um, you know really really nicely for the last uh, 17 18 years yeah I mean it's great how that circle that relationship circle back around yeah in the process um, that's fascinating. I, re I have this memory and this might not, you, you can verify if this is correct, but I, I remember being over in London waiting to catch a flight at Gatwick, I think. And you had emailed me, uh, let go, uh, while I was over in London and you were, I, I, in, in my mind, at least this is how I remember it. Uh, you were like, what do you think? Should I work? You know, should I work this? What do you think of this record, essentially? <laughs> and I remember listening to it and getting through Blizzard of 77 and then getting into the second song going, oh, my God, this is so good. Like, and I think my response back to you, well, if you don't, I will. Because it was just such a classic record, uh, you know, from the very get-go. And from the first listen, for me, at least. And, and I was familiar with the band. I remember Popular, but I didn't follow the record after that. And I really... You know, and I guess give some context too. And again, this is just my own perception, but I think they unfortunately were kind of lumped into a band that, or a lot of bands from say the mid to late '90s that had a big radio hit but never really followed up on it. You could argue that Radiohead fell into this category for a hot minute too, but you know there was definitely kind of a, a disconnect there. You know, uh, mm -hmm. but you know clearly they were on a path and they had made a really brilliant record. And that's worn out over time, but uh, that that's that's kind of my own personal memory of of that initial kind of connection and hearing that record for the first time. Um, yeah, I, I, have a, I have a very similar story with a, another friend of mine um, uh, named Jeff Barrett, who runs Heavenly Records in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. Where we ended up, we were both in LA at the same time. I went up to his hotel room. I played in Blizzard of '77. Uh, maybe Blonde on Blonde, and, you know, before the, you know, I think the, before the first song was over, he was like, Ben, this is brilliant, I want to I put this out. Um, and when I saw that kind of reaction, that immediate reaction, um, you know, it was very clear that, you know, this was, uh, was going to be a good re project to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. Those, are, those kind of records don't come along very often um in my experience you know yeah uh so to to be able to play a role in that uh and, and so early in the process uh and in, like you said perfect timing really for for both you and the band 
mm-hmm. um, and, and all that previous experience, you know, working with Nielsen and the people and, and all those other artists you just mentioned, you know, c- probably gave you enough context. So you, and in, in addition to your label experience, you knew exactly at that point, probably what you were getting into and what, what that experience, you know, what that ride would look like on some level. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice to have that, that base. Right. To, to, right. to, to start doing management from. Yeah. So what, so what was it like, you know, kind of taking that initial reaction that you were getting from that record and then doing the hard work that ultimately we all have to do, even when you have a great piece of art, uh, as far as finding it a home, uh, and accentuating it in the way that you needed to, to, to see it, you know, kind of carve out some success. By the time I got involved, um, they had, they had a manager in Europe who was based in, in France where the band had a very large audience and he had already gotten, um, he was, he was, he was very close at that time that I got involved to getting the band, uh, a deal with a company called Labels, uh, which was a part of EMI France uh, for Europe. Um, and then when I got involved, um, I was able to bring Heavenly in the UK on board, who were also distributed by EMI. Um, and the band had already been in the process of meeting with uh, Barsuk Records in Seattle um, by the time I started working with them. So... Um, that was already kind of, um, moving forward. Um, and, you know, it wasn't like we were out there trying to find, um, we, the band was, because of what their experience was with Electra, they were more interested in finding the right people, um, that they wanted to, uh, work with. And, 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 you know, at the time... Um, Barsoog had been putting out Death Cab Records for a while, which, um, and I think Matthew and Josh from the record company really connected. So the band wasn't really interested in, in, you know, really shopping for a deal in America. So that was already in place by the time I got involved. Um, and then we did something at that time, which I don't think you can do these days, which is the record was originally released in Europe and the UK, in September of 2002 and we held off on the U.S. release until February of 2003 um, and I don't think you could do that these days because of yeah it's, it's more of a flat uh, world yeah yeah and but by doing that um, the band had all of this great coverage coming back from England, from Europe, that was reaching people in America. So by the time we were ready to go out with the album here, um, you know, there was a, a really big feature in the New York Times about the band and the album release. Um, there was, you know, just a lot of, uh, a lot more excitement um, by the time we put it out over here. Yeah, that's always helpful and a gift to have, uh, and, yeah. and certainly in that 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 era too. Having that, in particular, like I'm thinking of like Mojo and Uncut, some of the UK magazines, press outlets, really did carry a lot of weight. I think for a certain segment of music fans here in the states. Um, yeah, definitely. The other thing I would say is that 
soon after Let Go came out, um, it's when you, you started to hear a lot of really good alternative music in, uh, in TV shows. Oh, true. So the band started seeing a lot of, um, you know, income and, uh, and just uh, visibility from, uh, from film and TV licensing because commercial radio wasn't, wasn't playing that record. Um, but we certainly uh, were able to reintroduce the band to a lot of people um, from f- licensing and touring. Right, right. Um, was Jackie on board when you came aboard too, on the touring front? Or Yeah, that's probably been a pretty critical piece, I think, um, as well. On the t- I mean, that's... I was a fan of the record. Uh, I've, I've <laughs> already kind of gloated about that, but I mean, seeing them live was a whole other experience. Uh, you know, it kind of took it to a whole different level for me. I mean, they they still are in a lot of ways one of my favorite bands to go and see play. Like, I I would not miss the opportunity to go and watch a not a surf show. But I I mean, I I just I know I'm not alone in that. I know that you know they've definitely been able to retain and carve out a strong fan base based on their consistency in playing. Right. I think, I think that's certainly the case. And, and I always marvel at the fact that this band can be on stage for, you know, almost two hours. Um, and the, the set list is like, there, there's no letdowns. There's never any time where like, I want to walk away and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's, there's the quality of the songwriting over the years is just so strong. And also I give them so much credit because they, they still love, um, playing these shows after, you know, 25 years. Um, and, you know, I feel like most bands can get away with, 70 maybe 90 minutes and not a surf can like consistently go out and play for two hours and it's a great great show yeah and you won't even necessarily hear all the songs you want to hear in that two hour time frame because there's so many exactly well the crazy thing is after playing a two-hour show matthew the lead singer will go out to the merch table with his guitar and he'll play another like one or two songs um you know, for, you know, which is which is usually like fan requests um, because the band wasn't able to get to the song they wanted to hear on stage. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing uh, and so endearing to see uh, as well. Yeah, they they definitely don't take it for granted, and they're appreciative of um, of their audience. Yeah, I mean, I I think their audience picks up on that. You know, it's a very sincere. Um, relationship in that regard. Uh, There's certainly a band you want to root for and see good things happen. Um, but yeah, I did want to touch on just the consistency from Let Go, that album that kind of reinstated them in a way uh, through the record will be coming out next year. I mean, I think it, it, there's very few artists in my mind that occupy a space where for me at least, I want to hear all their work. I want to hear their newest work. And I know going into it, it's going to be as good, if not better than everything else I've heard. There's a certain level of comfortability 
um, it's like seeing an old friend, you know, or, you know, putting on an old pair of shoes or something. I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's definitely, there's a level of consistency there and craft that is, um, is very, uh, inviting, um, which, you know, few artists really are able to touch on, but I think that goes back to, you know, what we were just talking about, just the consistency and level of songwriting and performance that is there when, you know, going out probably, I imagine on this next tour picking two hours worth of, of tunes is going to be a challenge when you pepper in another two or three or four or more, you know, from the new record that need to be uh, added to that canon. Um, I mean, that's just a, it's a, a beautiful place to be able to be at, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure as their career continues to unfold. Um, what are some of the challenges based on that kind of consistency? Because, I mean, it's really, on one hand, it's really great to know that, um, but it also has a tendency to potentially breed, um, I guess, a certain amount of, not apathy per se, but just like comfortability, you know, in, in kind of how you break and build beyond that mold. Um, what have you guys been able to do beyond, you know, kind of leaning into the, um, the tried and true, probably people that like them consistently oppress the consistent touring component. Like how do you um, engage and find new fans essentially? Um, that's a battle that we face every time these guys put out a new record. Um, every time we get ready to put out a record, the question that we get from the label, the publicist, is what's the story? And after all this time, it's really hard to find the angle or the story to tell uh, around each record. And it's important because going out with like another really good Not A Surf record each time, um, it doesn't move the needle. You know, you have to find other ways. Um, and... Honestly, like, you know, social media has been critical in, uh, in, in helping us um, move forward and, and grow the audience because, um, you know, you get these people who kind of feel like you do, Chris, and, and are rooting for the band. They, um, they're, they, I don't know, they I not really raise their voice, but they... Um, are out there online talking about um, about the band and, and about the, the records. And it's amazing how many times you see, oh, not a surfer still putting out records? I only know them from Popular. I'm going to go check them out now. Um, wow. <laughs> it's, it's shocking, you know, after, after all this time. Um, but, you know, until we get, like, uh, a, a big break or, um, you know, or like lightning strikes. Um, that's what we've been relying on, which is just releasing quality, authentic music and going out and playing um, great shows. Uh, the problem, the, the, the problem or part of the problem is, you know, making great records isn't a fast process. Um, and there have been, or there are, year-long gaps in between the band's releases. Um, and so, you know, you have to figure out ways to uh, remain visible um, 
while also you know giving the band time to write. Um, they're older, most of them have families, so um, they need to you know that that's that's key as well. Um, so it's it is it's very challenging. Yeah, I, I kind of recall. I think this was in between album cycles. Um, we were talking previously about, um, you know, making and doing covers, uh, and not only recording cover songs, but, you know, peppering them into sets and whatnot. Um, I, there's two covers that they've done that come to mind, you know, in thinking about the, 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 uh, sync opportunities too, if, if I recall, didn't they do a Beatles cover for uh, a commercial? And then they also had a, a cover of a Pixie song that get picked up and used in a commercial as well. Am I remembering correctly on those? Oh, and yeah. didn't those fall in between album periods too, to some degree to kind of fill those gaps a little bit and raise visibility and awareness through tapping into, you know, the kind of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, familiarity with these songs already. Yeah. The, the chase commercial, um, I believe it happened in 2006. Um, after, uh, the weight is a gift was released. Um, and I think that that took people by surprise. Um, I don't think they were expecting to hear not a surf there. Um, and then a couple years ago, um, completely out of the blue, um, we got a request for their cover of, uh, where's my mind by the pixies to be used in a Samsung commercial. Um, and that came, um, you know, soon after the band had uh, ended their touring cycle um, on, or actually right around the time that the band ended the, the touring cycle of You Know Who You Are, um, their last studio record. Um, and, you know, I think that also um, got the, the band and, and the cover um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of visibility. And honestly, the, the money from that license allowed us to take um, a more leisurely pace um, for creating new music um, and, and getting a new record out. So that was, that was a, a luxury that we were not um, expecting to have. No, it's a great byproduct, you know, of getting that exposure, but also, you know, getting a, a little bit of a more of a comfortable um, condition, if you will, financially to allow uh, for what you just described. I mean, that's that that's kind of in the background, right? <laughs> but it's a it's a nice one-two punch to, to yeah. have that. And, you know, I you don't want to. It's horrible to have to like rush a record out. Um, right. rush the, the recording or the writing process. So to have that extra time, um, I think benefits, uh, the, the, the next album. Yeah, no doubt. Um, well, yeah, obviously we've been, uh, focusing a lot on, on not a surf and, and my, uh, my fandoms shown through. Um, but I wanted to circle back around to, to Jesse Terry, uh, as well. Um, when did you first bump into Jesse? Um, it was soon after my son was born. So it was the summer of 2014. Right. Um, and, um, you know, Jesse's career is kind of in a different trajectory in some respects than, than when you came in 
um, on uh, on not a serve. So, but I, I, as a manager, fellow manager, I've been really impressed with the work that both you and Jesse do. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to to get some insight as to uh, how that working relationship um, goes. Uh, it's really different than than not a surf. Um, Jesse works just as hard on the the business side of his career than the, as the music side. Uh, when I got involved with him, he didn't have booking agents. Um, he had he really had no help at all, and he had been doing everything. Um, and he'd be doing it really well for an artist with no agent. He was playing a lot of shows, um, you know. And I just I thought he was uh, making really strong records that weren't getting any attention. Um, so that's why I was that. Uh, I guess there were, there were a number of reasons why I, I wanted to get involved with him. Um, Two, he's just he's he's a great guy and and he's somebody you wanna spend time with and and, and work with. Um, he had uh, I first found his name through Nielsen Hubbard's website, who had produced one of his records, um, and so Nielsen totally vouched for him, said he was a a great guy, um, good to work with, and it turned out he was from this little town in Connecticut, uh, which was really you know, very close to the town that I grew up in. Um, and I was just really surprised that, you know, this, an artist was living in, uh, in Stonington, Connecticut, uh, this beautiful <laughs> kind of Connecticut coastal town. Um, so I know all, the, all those things came together and, um, Jesse and I met and he was, he was just somebody I, I really wanted to, to help out. Um, and so since I've worked with Jesse, um, you know, I've been able to bring on agents for for the world. Um, he's put out a number of um, records and EPs. We've run some very successful fan funding uh, projects, and the guy just continues to work incredibly hard. And so, yeah, no, it's definitely my impression of, of him too. He seems like that kind of that new. Uh, kind of tenor of artists that, you know, like you said, get involved on the business side, uh, aren't afraid to get their hands dirty and are passionate about that component of their career. Yeah. I think he, I just think he's very motivated. Um, he's very ambitious, um, in terms of wanting to do this as a career, uh, and also wanting to grow and develop as a, as an artist. You know, it's something that he um, thinks about a lot and and puts a lot of um, time and effort into. Yeah, and it kind of touches on the one last little thing I wanted to kind of uh, get your perspective on a little bit. Um, for yourself as a manager, but also for the, the two artists that you um, are partnered with, how do you define um, success? Like, is it a... a, a you know, a group component of this is what we're trying to achieve with this record or with this project or what, what level of, um, balancing that kind of nuance of managing expectations while kind of pushing things forward. Um, how, how is that for, for both you personally, but also for the artists that you work with? 
you know, these days I feel like we're successful just by the fact that we can continue to do this. Uh, that mm. the fact that I can continue to um, manage artists, do it on my own. Um, the fact that these guys, none of these artists, have day jobs. They're able to make their living from uh, you know putting out records and, and touring. Um, and also that that I think the quality of the music that they're putting out um, remains very very high. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think we're deemed a success um, by those marks. Um, you know, I, I you know, I, I can't say that I was satisfied with uh, the response to, you know, the last Not a Surf record or, um, you know, even, even Jesse's last couple records. But I don't consider them unsuccessful, or or consider us unsuccessful, because I think that the the needle continues to move in the right direction, for uh, for for both of them. Yeah, no, that's a great perspective. I mean, it's it is hard to hone in on because we're all ambitious uh, in in any project we work on, but it is hard to to kind of put that in perspective. Um, and I love what you just touched on there as far as like being financially independent enough to focus on your craft on both sides of it, you know, both for yourself and then for the artists that you work with. Uh, I think that's, that's a huge major touchstone, uh, for defining success. Um, and it doesn't limit the idea of trying to push the needle for, you know, further, um, and, and trying to strive for, for, you know, more opportunity, uh, in the future too. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a, that's a healthy balance and a great way to look at things. Uh, well, Ben, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to chat, um, through all Thanks, this. Man. Um, it's, uh, you know, our speaking for myself, our friendship and your mentoring for me as a manager has been huge in so many ways at so many different times in my career and uh, I just love the fact that, you know, you're still out there doing amazing work and that we're able to connect every so often to give uh, mutual uh, appreciation and support, which is needed <laughs> ever so, uh, more so, it seems like, uh, for us managers. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, it's I thank a tough, you for that. It's a tough business and it's a tough time, but, um, you know, I, I can't think of anything else I, I want to would want to do yeah no that's a good point too it's like i've done a lot of various things in my career too but management's been the one consistent thing and it's the thing that i feel most confident in doing and I, yeah there's something to be said for that i think not m dissimilar i guess than than artist you know it's like they're going to create their craft anyway you know they're going to mm -hmm. sing and perform and write um and create art um so finding a way to do that you know, effectively and make it rewarding, I guess is, you know, an important component on both sides of defense, um, for folks like ourselves doing artist management, supporting artists, and certainly for artists themselves. Um, it's, it's definitely a challenging environment, but, uh, you know, it's still, I find a lot of joy still in it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the, the victories kind of feel even sweeter these days. Yeah. When you, when you do get them. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. 
Uh, well, man, thanks, thanks again. I really do appreciate this. Thanks to our guest, Ben, and thanks to you for allowing us to occupy your ear space today. I'd like to thank my dear friend, Tony Miracle, for both the theme music and graphics for Tough Love, and I want to dedicate this first season to a truly inspirational manager who passed away last year, Elliot Roberts. Rate us, follow us, and above all, share this podcast with all your friends and fellow music industry and artist communities. It takes a village. You can reach us at chris at anhedoniamanagement.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at A-N-H-E-D-O-N-I-A-M-G-M-T dot com. Be well, trip up, get back up, and let's all learn as we go. Until next time.